This podcast was recorded on April 29th, 2019. The views and opinions expressed herein are as of the date recorded and should not be construed as an offer to buy or sell any securities. Such views and opinions may differ from those of DoubleLine Capital or its affiliates and are subject to change without notice. DoubleLine has no obligation to provide any updates or changes. All right, welcome to The Sherman Show. I'm here with my co-host today, Sam Lau. Hey, hey. And today we have a special guest. It's Milken Week here, and so we get a lot of people coming to the offices, touring Beverly Hills and Los Angeles. And today we have the chief market strategist from Jefferies, David Zervos. Welcome, Dave. Great to be here. Kind of sounds weird to call you Dave. You know, doesn't ever, does everybody call you Zervos? No, a lot of people, a lot of people call me Dave. Okay. Not a lot of people say David. David, um, okay. it's, Mostly it's Dave. And, uh, yeah, and Zervos. Okay. All right. Well, I mean, as a Sherman, I get the Sherman all the yeah. time, you know. So, um, again, uh, Zervos, there, there's only one Zervos, if I think about it. I know sure, you Sherman's pretty popular. It is very, it's a very popular name. Uh, depends where you are in the U.S. Yeah. Yeah. There's, sometimes that popularity is a negative popularity <laughs> in certain states and, uh, and regions. So, uh, with that, imagine. We'll, yeah. So, uh, th- there's a per- certain part that I don't spend too much time in for that reason. But let's talk a little bit about your background. You spend a lot of time out there. Focus on economics. You're a chief strategist now. How did you get into the business? Obviously, going out, getting a PhD in economics, that's a good way to start. But what did you think about your career path when you were when you're at school and trying to think about actually uh, making some money through history or through time? I'll try to answer that quickly. I never wanted to be an economist. I actually was an engineer at uh, WashU in St. Louis, electrical and systems. And I went over to the econ department to raise my GPA to get a better job because uh, <laughs> you got more pay if you came out with like three five or three six and everybody was going to mcdonald douglas or lockheed she started to really like economics i took two classes um what'd you start one, with well i just took you know macro micro and all that it was kind of like super you know straightforward and then i'm like i might as well get a minor this is kind of fun and they kept raising my gpa so i was like that's good uh and uh i took an economic history class with doug north who was one of the first historians to win a Nobel Prize in economics. And he really changed my view of economics. And then I took Hyman Minsky's class. Uh, so I was fortunate enough to have Minsky in the department there, who now is sort of a, in the everyday lexicon of the markets yeah. when things are getting messy. Yeah, I would think um, Macaulay really catapulted him to that status. Yeah, right? I think that's probably right. Yeah, I don't think before, before Paul, I don't think people were really bringing him out that much. But I think like any time, like even, you know, 08, 09 or... I think if I remember correctly, and I could be wrong, even in 01 and 02, you know, people started talking. You know, whenever you get these big corrections, people bring up the Minsky stuff, especially if there's any short vol involved. Anyways, make a long story short, I just decided, hey, why not get a PhD in economics? They were, you know, offered me a scholarship. I was deciding between job and that. Loved it. Never thought about going into finance at all. And I went to the Federal Reserve. I spent three years there. I got sent to the, I was just modeling term structures, doing a lot of yield curve for them, but I was really writing academic papers. I wasn't that interested in term structure stuff, but it was a way to pay the bills. And, you know, I got kind of sucked into the markets, into London. I spent three weeks at the Bank of England on a switch program between their staff and our staff. And we were doing, gosh, way back. We were, uh, we were trying to identify securities that were being manipulated. That was part of the big thing after the Solomon Brothers auction squeezes back in the 
late 80s, early 90s. Back when manipulating prices was a bad thing. Exactly. <laughs> and they liked my term structure models a bunch. And uh, there were a couple banks that were there. And there were a couple of academics that were there at this conference about you know, extracting information out of the yield curve and the like, about securities, about forward rates, about directional policy. They just called me up and said, hey, you know, you want to make 4x what you're making and move to London? And I was like, all right, that sounds pretty good. Pay off my student loans and uh, the rest is history. Well, at that saying. point, you almost had to make 4x because the, the exchange rate with the pound was <laughs> yeah. dollar, right? I mean, it's probably like... Yeah, I'm trying to think. Like I think it was pretty... No, was it, it, was, it, was, it was right around here. Like, yeah. No, it was a little yeah. higher, 150. Okay. And then it went up. Yeah, yeah. it went up a bunch. Yeah, the thing I, I two remember, and a quarter, I think. Two and a quarter, high, I think, right? was the high, but I wasn't sure. I, Which is crazy, if you yeah. think about it. Yeah. Now well, it's pretty cheap. Well, the numbers always look the same, too, right? Yeah. So nominally, before you change mm-hmm. it, you always have the same number there. It's just Absolutely. that, I mean, it was so expensive back in, was that 05, 06, I think is exactly. about where it Yeah, you know, I had come back yeah. from London in the early 2000s. So I was there for most of the 90s, 94 to 2000, and then... Came back in uh, the early 90s at the Fed, London for seven years, and then uh, eight years in Greenwich, New York, working for a couple different hedge funds, working for a couple sell-side firms, doing research, so trading research, and then back to the Fed in 09 as an advisor to my old boss, Don Cohn, who was the vice chair at the time. And uh, really, actually, my favorite year. My favorite year was 2009. So explain uh, that. Well, it was... the Least money I made, but you know I was I was watching the crisis unfold like everybody in '08. I was sitting at Brevin Howard and um, was very long the dollar, uh, which was a hard trade in '08 because everybody was talking about decoupling, decoupling. You know the U.S. is going to go one way and everybody else is okay. And I'm like, it started with the EM decoupling first, exactly. and then it was the, the U.S. would decouple, right? Exactly. And uh, I guess I just always had a pretty simple view about crises, and it was that. When you have deleveraging, when assets go down and people have liabilities based on those assets, they either the assets have to go back up or you have to get rid of the liabilities. And I just looked at the liability side of the world and what does everybody borrow? They borrow dollars. Right. So if you were betting on things getting messy, you were going to bet on a deleveraging you were kind of going to bet that people had to get dollars. They didn't need gold. They didn't need Bitcoin. They didn't need many other currencies, certainly not EM or, or Euro. Um, maybe you could argue yen given home bias and the way that Japanese operate and repatriation. But um, I basically put everything into that, you know, almost ran to my stop in the beginning of the year when they bailed out Bear Stearns, but I had everything in options and then, you know, made a bunch of money and had a great, great fall, one of my best years. And, and through that time period, I was learning a lot about what, you know, I didn't really know what was happening I mean, I had an idea, like I was digging under the surface in 07 and understood there was some weird stuff, but I didn't really fully appreciate the structured investment vehicles, all the off-balance sheet stuff, where the lending was, all the contracts that had been written on the lending that we did that were concentrated in AIG and others. And anyways, I was, you know, very much talking to, I was talking daily to my old colleagues at the board because they were... They they were con- coming to the market all the time. I was interested in talking to them. They were interested in talking to me. And over the years, I'd always talk to them. And and I remember I was having lunch sometime during uh, middle of 08, beginning of 08. It might have even been back in 07. And, you know, they were like, you know, whenever you want to come back, you know, just take a sabbatical, leave the markets. You, know, you can always come back to the board and hang out. We'd love to have you, miss you kind of thing. And, uh, it, and it was a nice thing to say. And at the end of the year, I, I was lucky enough to work at a fund that made a lot of money. And Alan did very well. And then, you know, I just called him up and I said, you know what? Uh, I'd really like to spend 2009 at the board. 
especially because Brevin Howard was moving um, all the traders back to Switzerland and uh, at that time. And so they were closing the New York office for personal reasons. I wasn't going to Europe. I had kids and, uh, and an ex-wife and things like that that I needed to – it would mess up my family's life. So it just sounded like a good idea. And, you know, I, I'll say it. It's kind of a weird thing to say, but as I thought about it, I, I really – watching 2008 and 2009 unfold, seeing kind of what we did in markets, what – we as a business did Wall Street, global financial markets. You know, I was pretty disillusioned and pretty saddened by everything that I uncovered. I mean, I knew there were bad guys. There's always bad guys, but just the level of the sort of taking advantage of the system, taking advantage of the put back to the government uh, in the banking system, uh, really, it just made me kind of unhappy to be in the business a little bit. And my way of kind of going and fighting the battle was to go to D.C. Yeah. So I spent four days a week in D.C. so I could see my kids the other three days back up in uh, Connecticut. And, uh, you know, it was great. Uh, you know, it was just I you walked in there in January of 2009 and it was, you know, I mean, everything was it was like a bomb had gone off. Like no model worked. Nobody understood what was going on. Mm-hmm. Everything they had tried, every funding facility, every. That was back in like the TARP, TALF, I think. It was before QE1. Yeah. We were just talking about designing the TALF. The TALF. And I spent okay. a lot of time on that. Spent a lot of time in the debates around QE1. And there was then a lot troubled asset liquidity, liquidity uh, facility? Troubled or lending asset facility. relief. That was TARP. That was TARP. Oh, uh, yeah. And then there was TALF. What was basically lending on commercial real estate? I forget. I mean, we had the there so AMLF, yeah. the PDCF, the CP, to, CPFF. Or well, it has to be an paper. it has to be an acronym, right? Yeah, there had to be an yeah. F somewhere in there, or two Fs. <laughs> a lot of a yeah. lot of F bonds yeah. going on. But look, look, I mean, it was just kind of nice to see my colleagues at the Fed who felt I, who had sometimes a little bit of overconfidence kind of brought back to earth. It's nice to see. Everybody kind of coming together and going, okay, how can we how can we think about fixing this? And it was uh, it was it was a great time to be there. I mean, look, when I walked in, I thought I honestly thought we were going to nationalize the banking system. And there were memos on my desk, you know, one of them called like the National Unity Bank, which was a you know a structure of how to basically take Chase, City, and B of A and, and pull a Sweden on them. Yeah. And, and put them all together and well, take the, the balance wasn't the framework? I mean, the framework at the uh, time was really thinking about the SNL crisis, right? Yeah. So how to how to make the Just bad bank? Which I think did Iceland do it before the Fed was talking about that? Too? I know that people have referred to the Iceland banking model now as the bad bank the, yeah. versus the the rest. I, of the that's assets. a good question. I don't remember when Iceland rolled up everything. It was probably during '09. I don't think it was as early as '08. But, but I mean, the real model that was being discussed was the Scandinavian model right. of the early '90s, and um, there was a lot of there was a lot of folks around the table that thought that was a pretty good idea, and a way to wipe out the equity holder, and a way to take the senior lenders in the bond markets and kind of penalize them for having a bad business model, right. and um, that didn't play so well at the New York Fed and. Geithner fought back on it and you know the rest is history. But I mean, look, it was a great time to debate all this stuff, debate QE, understand 
all these things that we do now that seem so, you know, uh, you know, <laughs> common. Back then, it was like, what? We're going to take the balance sheet up one point seven five trillion dollars? Are you kidding me? You know. Right. What and was then, the? Uh, I mean, can you describe more of the sentiment in, in terms of being at the Fed? Was it just panic, confusion as the models stopped working, and you have these real life crises coming into play? Where, as you as you as you pointed to, you know, perhaps some hubris there being burst and. There was a lot of hubris burst, which I think is helpful, is good. I mean, look, and same in the markets, right? I mean, there were a lot of people sure. who had, had business models that, that failed. But I think there was a genuine panic. I mean, it was a real panic. Like, we're headed for the Great Depression, and we got to kind of go all in outside the box to figure this thing out. And I give Ben an enormous amount of credit for letting all of these – unbelievably unusual things go through the system because legally the feds got a lot i mean the, the act is the act and you can interpret it a lot of different ways but you know they were on the edges of the act 133 everything else they took some real risks with the structure of of the federal reserve and and it paid off and, and look 10 years later it's yeah. literally 10 years almost exactly later and we have a 3.8 unemployment rate and today the PC deflator came out, I think, with a high one. It was one yeah, six, it was one like, seven. It was one, it was, came I think the rounding was one seven. I mean, yeah. it's amazing. Yeah. And to think, like, in March of 09. People were talking about five, six, ten percent inflation yeah. rates are going to come. Exactly. The money printing. Or and look, I didn't know. My, my, my basic story coming out of the Fed to clients. I remember being here debating with you guys not too soon after I came out, was, look, we're either going to land in the 90s or the 70s. Nobody knows. Nobody knows what this balance sheet thing is. Like, it's just the greatest monetary policy experiment. I kind of was always betting for the 90s. That was my stocks are for lovers, gold is for haters. My Mm -hmm. no-hater hats were always, if you land in the 90s, you buy the stocks because you think all the stimulus is going to go in. It's going to get animal spirits going. People are going to become innovative, productive entrepreneurs again, and there's going to be a real return on capital. And you're going to want to own capital because it's going to generate a real return. Now, if you think all that stimulus that went in was just going to generate inflation, no animal spirits, no growth. It was just a sort of true monetary expansion where everybody just saw the inflation. It pops up and we get effectively stagflation. Mm -hmm. Then you get 70s and you want to buy gold because – Basically, a zero real return is going to be better than all the negative returns from owning capital, negative real returns. Sure. And, and the debate I always said is, look, we're just not going to the 30s. We're not we're not doing Japan. We're not going to the Great Depression, and we're not going to the Japanese outcome. We're not going to the debt deflation spiral. Um, that was always my debate with clients, which kind of left me always sort of leaning toward that equity risk asset trade and kind of a, a bet that the Fed would always do more. They'd always risk the inflation to get us growing again. And and so it was really the kind of Fed put structure yeah. that, that I, I was pushing coming out of the institution. And the reason I pushed that is because of what I saw. I just saw a group of people looking at an abyss in January, February, March that never, ever wanted to go back there again. Well, you talk, you talk about that. So the unconventional becoming status quo, right? Mm-hmm. As we talk about QE, you mentioned the debt deflation from Japan and their experience. 
Where are we today? You know, people are harping on a week ago. The, the what was it? The Bloomberg Business Week uh, magazine with you know <laughs> uh, the death of deflation or death of inflation, I should say. People keep asking, is inflation dead? We talk about the personal consumption expenditure being low here. Oil prices sure don't feel it. But again, but still, people want to pull anecdotes. I went to the grocery store and prices went up. But where are we in this whole inflation argument? Is it the fact that we have too much debt overhang? It's servicing that de- debt that's causing it. Uh, is the fact that we've pulled consumption forward to these programs. Well, how are you thinking about inflation in this world? Uh, I know you're a Phillips Curve hater. Uh, and again, uh, i got to tell our listeners, he brought a Sabini here that says RIP Philip S. Curve. So you put the S in there as the initial. And uh, we have uh, the 60-year RIP uh, grave uh, tombstone there, too. But tell us how you think about inflation. Forget, you know, you, you can talk about why you don't like the Phillips Curve. We actually had Jim Bianco on a couple of weeks ago. He was talking about that. He thought it was this... The only model that keeps it held together of how they can actually think about keeping employment low and the reason for them to raise rates and kind of stifle that off. And it's this linear relationship that we all know doesn't hold. But again, not to critique Jim, who's not here today. I love Jim. He's (laughs) a great guy. I I think he's awesome, too. Um, Love to hear your uh, thoughts about the, the world through an inflation lens today. Like I said, look, my, my views have evolved a lot. And I was open to the idea that we were possibly going to create some excess inflation, which would have involved keeping rates too low, doing a lot of QE, but and then ultimately losing a little bit of control of inflation, but getting us some growth and getting us the unemployment rate down and kind of and getting again, nominal GDP yeah, up, right? Which yeah, is kind of what we need, right? right. And, and kind of risking the seventies to get the nineties. And maybe we had to go a little into the seventies. So you wanted to be careful with tenure notes. You want to be careful with long bonds. I was never a buyer of the long end of the market. I was always spoos and blues or spoos and twos. Or can you, can you, can you, can you explain always, that to yeah. our listeners who so, don't trade your dollar futures? Yeah. They may not even know what spoos are, yeah. but uh, S and P futures. So yeah. basically, buy stocks, and then you know what? What a lot of the I want to call them some of the best hedge funds in the world have done over many decades is something called risk parity. Risk parity is when you buy your stocks, you don't think about a 60-40 allocation or a 70-30 allocation stocks to bonds. Uh, if you have leverage and you're a hedge fund, you can say, okay, I'm going to buy the stocks, and now I want to hedge with bonds, but I want the volatility of my bond portfolio to equal the volatility of my stock portfolio. So let's say I put everything in stocks. I like my stocks. What would I have to do in bonds to get a hedge? And this is all levered, right? I'm doing it on margin. And you know, let's say the stock market trades at a 15% ball. And let's say the five-year treasury trades at a 5% ball. I'd need, for every 100 million of S&Ps, I need 300 million of five-year treasuries. Mm-hmm. Now I could do five-year treasuries. I could do two-year treasuries. I could do 10-year treasuries. I could do, as you said, Euro-dollar futures. Euro-dollar futures, something we trade a lot in the leveraged rate space. Uh, and I'm sure you guys are very involved here in them. They trade in, in these little packs with little colors. So the first year is white. And then the second year, which would be the bet on where LIBOR is going to be a year forward is the red. Where LIBOR is going to be two years forward is the greens. Where it's going to be three years forward is the blues. And there's golds and purples, and it goes on for 10 years. So the three-year forward one-year rate, where you think LIBOR is going to be in three years' time, so that would be 2022, is basically a contract you and I could do today. Mm-hmm. be about 2.5%. Yep. I could receive that. I could pay that. I could buy that exposure in as much size as I want, millions of dollars a basis point, transacting that every day. And so 
everybody likes to market things. Everybody likes uh, fun, rhyming things. I liked S&Ps and two-year treasuries, so I was kind of spoos and twos. But when twos went to zero, mm-hmm. <laughs> wasn't really much to do with them. Yeah. So you end up kind of saying, okay, i got to go out, so let me look at the forward rates. And the three-year forward, one-year rate was trading at about 3%. So you say, okay, that I can buy. It's, you know, that, that could... That could go down to one percent, and in fact, it did go down to one percent uh, in, in a, couple of, stay, yeah. a couple of a couple of as we stayed so low for so long. Yeah, yeah. and and it rolls right, so that three year becomes a two year, and then a one year, and so you're you're getting positive carry. The nice thing about that trade is you're getting a dividend on the stocks, and you're getting positive carry on the fixings. So you have a hedge. Usually, your hedge is something you pay for, but actually, you're 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 getting paid to have your hedge on, which is kind of positive a nice carry hedges are great. Yes, yeah, but but that trade really is a bet on the Fed more than anything. It's a bet that if stocks go down, the Fed is going to be changing expectations about rate where rates are headed, and that will be to the downside, not to the upside. That There will be a bullish move in fixed income. What's poison for that trade? The 70s. Mm-hmm. High inflation, Fed has to raise rates, stifles growth, stagflation. Oh, my God, you, yeah. you die. Yeah. So ultimately, I was betting against the 70s. Ultimately, I was betting on a Fed that even if it did get to the 70s, the way it would get there is through keeping rates really low for a long time, meaning those short-term interest rates would go to to near zero, but the long end might unravel on them. So I never touched that 10 and 30 year. And as as I kind of progressed over, this is my 10th year at Jefferies, over the years, a lot of debates with so many smart clients. You guys, I mean, just so many great guys to, to learn from, which is the best part of my job. best part of my job is walking into a room full of people with six charts saying, okay, let's go. And people try to tear me apart because I just walk out smarter every time. It's my favorite thing of the job. Too. It's the best. Now, I'm not attacking you per se, yeah. but just but, those, no, those no, conversations. Just, that's, just, that's all we take yeah, to meetings. It's almost, yeah. you know, it's almost yeah. like, you know, you're an academic at times, right? You're sitting there in the, like, the lunch seminar and just fighting with everybody. It's great. And, and look, and, and the good news is there's, there's a market that kind of determines who was right and who was wrong. So right. it's not even like some academic paper where my model is better than you. It means like, <laughs> right, actually it's right. like, hey, schools right. went up or down or, right. you know, right. or, or, exactly. or rates yeah. went up or down. And I started talking to a bunch of folks about the inflation side. And, and I, look, I've never been – like my bet was we're not going to the 70s. But I, was, but I was nervous about the balance sheet. We're going up to $4 trillion, Who knows? You know, this was QE1, QE2. I'm like, gosh, I don't know about these 10 years. You know, it's kind of never, – never really bought into it. And then I started you – know, I always was a bit of a – in the 90s, I was always kind of one of those tech bulls that believed that inflation – that disinflation was coming from technological advance, that there was more of a supply-side driver to inflation than a demand-side driver. But I didn't know how to do the aggregate demand offset that would come from this monetary policy. And then I started looking at demographics. A bunch of clients just kept sending me things. you got to look at the demographics. Look at – Japan, look at Sweden, look at Germany, look at France, look at the U.S. These are all countries where the labor force is either growing at a negative rate, a zero rate, or a very small positive rate. They don't have any labor force growth. If you don't have people coming into the labor force, you don't have demand. Now, a lot of folks say, well, if you don't have people coming in the labor force, wages go up because you got to get people, pay more to, for the jobs. But I think that really misses the point. The point is... It's people working that buy stuff. That's where demand comes from. I don't need to hire anybody if there's no demand. So I need to get the demand first. I need the people. And if you go back and you look at 
the times where our labor force was growing very rapidly. The most rapid labor force growth in the post-war period was in the baby boom, when the baby boomers came in in the 70s. Mm-hmm. So baby boomers were born in the late 40s, early 50s after the war. They all came into the job market to look for jobs in the late 60s and early 70s. At the same time, the female labor force participation rate was going up very rapidly. So you had this massive influx of people coming in that wanted a house, a car, a refrigerator, a telephone. They wanted services. They wanted goods. And in a way, our economy just wasn't set up for that bubble, that bubble of people coming in and wanting stuff. And that was happening around the world, right? It was... There were baby boomers. Was at the time to yeah. kind of devaluing and, and, and try to figure out this. Exactly. Nobody could figure out this and what, what, how this inflation was going through the system. And, right. Bre- Bre- and, and of course, we broke a lot of the system. The gold window shut. Richard Nixon, you know, put the uh, thumb screws onto Arthur Burns. And if you go back to your economics classes, nobody really talks about demographics. They talk about the Fed being manipulated. They talk about the oil price shocks, about, you know, these, these outside shocks like OPEC. But a lot of that stemmed from not understanding that this there was a huge increase in demand. In fact, I've got to go back and get the statistic exactly right, but I think the 1970s is still the best decade for job creation in the history of the United States. So I think 20-some million jobs were created. The unemployment rate went up to 10% because we had so many people coming in. Right. So it, it was actually a great decade for job creation. It's just we had we had so much demand and that puts so much pressure on resources. So it's just a compositional demand of, of again, Absolutely. increasing, like having the dual income household, you know, more people just, uh, again, trying to live for those. And then you also had a pretty decent immigration back then as yeah, well, right? You did. And you had, you had a, a really big immigration, yeah. actually. You had a lot of, a lot of places where, you know, particularly South America and, and Mexico, but I mean, it was just, it was one of those kind of freak things that doesn't happen very often. And now, we're sitting in a demographic situation, which is the opposite. We're sitting in an almost zero labor force growth world for developed markets. And we're all wondering, how can the BOJ buy 50% of all the JGBs? How can the ECB be doing you know, 30, 35% of all the European government bonds into the balance sheet, doing all this QE? And the strongest economy in Europe, Germany, can't even generate inflation. How can the US do no, four and a half? GDP growth right, right. now. Either, yeah. but, four, four, yeah. I mean, so, right. so you're yeah. kind of looking at it going wow, we have other things going on here that are really important. Technology and demographics are just hugely disinflationary. I always kind of bought the technology. I really buy the demographics. So we're talking about the essentially yes. the disinflationary pressures due to yeah. demographic changes. And, and I think those two secular forces are ones I really focus on. And, and, and it got me much more comfortable with both the, the risk parity structures, but also that we weren't really unraveling the long end of the bond and and that was a change for me kind of 2014 like around the time of the taper tantrum where mm-hmm. everybody was getting freaked and kind of like well, wait a minute something kind of isn't right here and then in the last couple of years i really got excited about the supply side story the deregulation and the corporate tax reform yep. um, they are just very disinflationary you know they're, they're you're basically telling people they can cut out half their legal department, half their audit department, half their tax attorneys. That's deregulation. And that leaves a lot. That basically makes the cost of producing the widget go down. What happened to the cut half our tax bill part? Yeah, the, oh, yeah. the, the tax bill, well, California didn't <laughs> right. work out so well. <laughs> right. You know, you, you guys, and, you know, I've, I've since uh, my last 
child left for college three years ago. I moved to Miami. Okay. Um, which seemed like a really good idea three, almost this is my fourth year. A couple of years ago, it became a really good idea right. after the salt yeah. Yeah. structure. And but, it's, and also just the boom down there, the influx of people yeah. coming and. No, it's a great, a great, a great place. Your timing was good once again. I like, I like it down there a lot. I've got everything. Uh, I'm very positive about uh, South Florida, but the 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 important part about in the discussion is we have these positive supply shocks, deregulation, and corporate tax reform. If I cut corporate taxes, I am making the cost of producing that widget cheaper, which means the the econ 101 speak. My aggregate supply curve shifts out. That's higher output, lower prices. That's poison for the Phillips curve because the Phillips curve is a demand side story. I get big aggregate demand shift. Prices go up. Output goes up. Aggregate demand collapses, prices go down, output goes down. And the Fed thinks about its role as kind of regulating or, or managing aggregate demand. Mm-hmm. So when growth is hot, they think, oh, we got to take some away because prices are going to go up. That's the heart of the Fed. The heart of the Fed, the FRB US model, the heart of their decision making process is based on demand curve management, aggregate demand management. And I think the real problem with this is that the supply side just matters so much more. I don't want to sound too much like Larry Kudlow or, or, or some of the, you know, some of the real heavy supply siders, but I, you know, I got brought up in as an economics department and it's kind of, we were, we were like, I was called the University of Rochester where I was the, like the farm team for the University of Chicago. Every professor was a Chicago professor and, and so we were like the triple A club or the double A club. And, and so I got very much brought up to believe that the supply side matters a lot. And, and I think, Watching this last couple of years of things like deregulation and corporate tax reform, shifting out that aggregate supply curve, you can make sense of what's happening. Prices are not going up. Output is pretty strong. And it, it's, it's a really, I think, a really important point to go back and kind of look at what happened from 09 to 16 when regulation went the other way. We had not deregulation we had really relatively aggressive regulation or re-regulation that's a negative shift in the supply curve and what's fascinating about the first part of this crisis is if you look at inflation from 08 to sort of about 12 or 13 the fed nailed two percent inflation nailed it we had two percent pc on average when the output gap was like a mile wide right Phillips curve wouldn't say that. Phillips curve would be like, yeah, we should have massive deflation. We didn't. Profit margins were high. Basically, we had what I call a, a stagulation. That's my term. Secular stagulation. Larry Summers calls it secular stagnation. I wrote a piece. I was kind of putting all the pieces together called secular stagulation and kind of went on that for a while. And the regulation comes with the regulation. Yeah, yeah and right. it's regulation stagnating the economy. And, and what's interesting about that is you get a lot of corporates with a lot of market power because once the regulation goes up, the barrier to entry goes up. The barrier to entry goes up. Lots of people have more monopoly power. Profits are high. Outputs low. Prices stay high. The anomaly from 08 to 12 wasn't that we got disinflation. We weren't getting disinflation. We were actually getting pretty good inflation. But that was a shock. We shouldn't have been getting good inflation. We should have been getting massive deflation if the demand side was driving it. A lot of people to hypothesize at the time, though, it was all the QE, that it was inflationary, exactly. and therefore that was the thing that was keeping it, and probably our real growth was significantly lower, 
and that ultimately it was this amount of balance sheet and essentially just buying toxic assets. I, 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 I totally agree. And I got caught up in it. I yeah. thought of it. I'm like, oh my gosh, maybe we are creating the inflation. But I look back on it and I think that was a negative supply shock. We had weak output. This, this growth that we've had in the last 10 years, as much as you want to applaud where we are at low unemployment and low inflation, it hasn't been that great for total return. Right? No, I mean, right. I'm kind of barely getting two on average every year. Yeah. I mean, it's good. And look, we came from a pretty dark place. Sure. Happy. But at the end of the day, it wasn't gangbusters. And it's interesting that, you know, when people were calculating these output gaps in 08, 09, 10, 11, and 12, you know, the models would say inf- inflation is supposed to be negative. And we were actually nailing the target. Right. And it's been since 2012. We started to see that unwind a little bit, and then it's accelerated now to the downside where we've seen, I think, more positive supply shocks coming into the system, mm-hmm. whether it's technology or it's deregulation or it's corporate. So should the Fed be concerned today? I mean, a lot of folks are now talking, you know, at least at the beginning of the year, a lot of people are saying the Fed needs to cut. We're hearing now with the inflation misses of the last week or so with the GDP number coming out on Friday. And it kind of dis- it was disappointed on core p- uh, the core consumption there. Should the Fed be considering the cut? Should we just look at asset prices and, and say that first quarter, even though some of it's inventory built, some of it is essentially trade that got us to that, that rosier number? Um, should the Fed be considering the cut to be ahead of things this time? Or do you think it's just kind of a steady as she drifts for the time being? Let's, let's give it a few more months to wait and see. Uh, how do you think that, that plays out? It is Fed week after all. Um, again, this will, this will come out after the Fed, so I, I won't make you, uh, I won't make you commit to a forecast there, but how, how should the Fed be thinking? Should we think about the risk are more symmetric today versus being skewed to the downside? How, given your framework, should uh, the Fed be thinking about it right now? Or should it just give it time? So the question of like, how should they be thinking about it is always a fun one. I enjoy that one. I'll answer it. But first, I'm going to answer the one that I think is the more important question, which is what will they do? What will they do? Right. Because that's what yeah. people pay for. Sure. Yeah. Fair enough. I and mean, that's what people pay Jeffrey yeah. for. It's like they don't really care what does Dave Zervos think they should do. Like right. I always get that on CNBC. <laughs> How do I make money off this trade today? It's pretty simple business. Right. Yeah. Look, I think we had an epic failure in communication in Q4 with Jay. Yeah. I think he he's new to the job. It's it's a it's a complicated job. Uh, his training is a lot different than the training of his predecessors and getting the market to understand him was not easy. And I, I don't think he did himself any favors. I think he was pretty stubborn in backtracking on some of the misstated things right. that he said. And that started really in September. The September FOMC, I think that's where he really started. I think it was October 3rd yep. with Judy Woodruff. But the September one, I, I was okay with that. I thought the August... Jackson Hole speech was one of the best speeches I've ever had. You right. basically compared Fed policy to astrology, and you know, right. I love yeah. that. One. And then and the R star that was, that yeah. was great. Oh, he uh, pulled the stars, that out. Yeah, the stars. Know, yeah. No, it was a wonderful was, speech, yeah. and it, but we went to record highs. Guys were like, okay, they're throwing out the models. The Phillips right. curve's dead. Who cares? They're not going to be hiking against some phantom inflation story. Right. Which, by the way, is what stopped the one cycle. Now I wrote a piece last week for our clients, but just a, a simple short digression. The Fed got very nervous about PC inflation going from 1.4 to 1.8% in 2000 to 2001, okay, from spring of 2000 to spring of 2001. We were growing. The equity market was – or no, sorry, from 99 to 2000. Okay. Okay. My, my yeah, bad, my yeah. bad, my bad. 99 to 2000. So we got out of long term. All the models were wrong in 95, 96, 97, 98. The Fed cut. Growth was great. Inflation was low. All the staff was like, 
coming up with reasons why their models could be saved, but Greenspan wasn't listening to them. All of a sudden, we had the crisis. He looked like a hero. They looked like a zero. But then inflation after 99 starts to pick up. And all the staff is like, here we go. This we got back our- to like about 5% or so, like on, on headlines. I think headline went up a yeah. bunch, but Corp. Yeah, Corp was, was pretty. Corp was pretty tame. And Corp VC yeah. didn't right. break that much above two. And Corp CPI did. Yeah. But it's so interesting to go back and watch and li- read the transcript from the May 2000 meeting. So they had hiked five times in the five or so meetings before that, back up to 6% cut after long-term capital three times. So they were back above those levels. And the staff was arguing for a 50 basis point hike, that these 25s were not enough. And so, and the market was, didn't really know, didn't really know what was going to happen. And if you read the transcript, the Fed was talking about how 50 wasn't enough. And by the end of the year, they not only needed to do another 75, but they needed to do another 150. Short rates needed to go to 8% to stop the inflationary pressures that would be coming from the demand side based on their simulations. Right, the famous simulations of the FRB US model. I mean, it could have been the worst economic forecast in the history of economic forecasts. Which right? says a lot. Which says which a lot. Which is, yeah, yeah. so right up there. <laughs> so clearly, obviously, we were at one and a quarter funds rate by the end of 2002, went to one. Bernanke's talking helicopter money. There was no inflation. I mean, just epically bad. And obviously, they never went to eight. They, they were cutting by the end of the year. And 50, and, and they were cutting not by 25s, by 50s. So, my point in all that is when Jay complimented Alan Greenspan in that Jackson Hole speech about kind of fighting off the staff models and putting a lot of that modeling into context with astrology mm-hmm. um, and stars, mm-hmm. I, just, I think everybody got it. And then he just he just epically failed by bringing up neutrality and the long distance from neutrality. But I felt like he did that in the <laughs> September meeting for some reason. I've, that's what I felt like. Maybe I'm not recalling correctly, I, but I, I, it felt like that's where he started talking. I was like, wait, you went from one month ago, yeah, you know, yeah. dissing these malls to all of a sudden just talking about that. Everybody. It might be a little and, bit. Or like, and then also saying that this expansion going indefinitely and there's no reason and we're way far from neutral. And then two weeks, three weeks later, it's like, oh, well, we're kind of closer to neutral. And it, and then it was just like the, the flip-flopping. And I think, you were, I think you're the one that brought up the, the flip-flopping. I had a, I yeah. had a piece called yeah. Flip-Flop, Flip-Flop. Right. Then the capitalized big flop. Yeah, flop. Right, yeah. That was for December. Yeah. And look, I think the good news is I think we're all not going to take Jay that seriously when he says something because we know he speaks a little bit off the cuff about concepts which we've held in a little bit more rigorous way. With Too high regard, maybe, yeah. Yeah, and, and Jay's not a Taylor Rule guy. He's not a model guy. He's not giving you clues to his deeper thinking about the models or policy. So we can kind of push him aside and maybe look to Rich Clarida and look to John Williams, who are real mm-hmm. veterans that have uh, thought a lot about things like neutrality, written a lot about price level targeting and, and variable inflation rate targeting and all of that. And I think they've taken the helm a little bit for us. And that was what Q1 was all about. And we've gotten back to a place where this Fed is really, I think, not going to be looking at what the FRB US model says. They're not going to be saying, oh my God, the output gap is negative now for two and a half years. Inflation's coming, inflation's coming. We got to go up to some high level. This is the answer to your question. They're just not going to do it. And in fact, what's even better is that after this June framework change, I think they're going to embrace an inflation overshoot. Meaning, if they could get the core PCE 
to spend six months above two and a half percent. They'll be fine with it. They would be applauding Sorry, themselves. Right. They'd be applauding themselves. So is it is it just to let it overshoot, or is it this idea that I think that Yellen is now really lauded uh, significantly in saying that you know we should have this cumulative inflation, and so obviously you got to figure out where do you start? Is it the first time you miss or, or whatever? Right. But the, the cumulative inflation model. What do you think it, it is? I, I love that model. Yeah. I actually, and I think John Williams is kind of a. I mean, John's been a price level targeter, or closet price level target for a long time. It's really, it's really just the nominal GDP model, right? It is. It's, it's very similar. similar it's right? very similar. Which we were dusting off in 11 and 12 again, right? That, that was kind of the thing about uh, thinking about it, at least like globally central banks were thinking about it. I think it was after the ECB actually cut, uh, uh, or actually they started to let the balance sheet unwind, which is unheard of these days. Um, but I think that that was becoming more popular once again at that point in time. And it seems like they're all around that idea that we need to embrace some level of inflation or we need to not be so scared about inflation, right? It is a mix of growth and inflation. But I, the question is, is expectations, right? So that, I think that's the thing that people have been fearful of is that, if you lose the anchor on expectations by targeting this kind of cumulative model, does inflation become a self-fulfilling prophecy or self-feeding mechanism to kind of maybe get unwieldy and out of control? What do you think? Of I, I think yeah. that, look, I think that's a very well kind of articulated set of questions for the committee. And I think they're thinking about it really deeply. I do believe that the Bernanke Yellen contingent, which is a big contingent in the organization. There's not a lot of Richard Fisher's left, right. uh, yeah. which probably would not be in this contingent, are probably much more fearful of going into the next crisis with an embedded disinflation expectation mm-hmm. or inability to create inflation expectation. Because that's kind of what's going on in Europe today, right? And too? it went and on in Japan for 27 years. Right. And it looks like the Europeans are actually on, the, on their way, the right, yeah. right. And, and yeah. there's been a lot of pieces written as, you know, is this the Shirakawa, you know, is Draghi the Shirakawa Shirakawa, of yeah. the 2010s? Well, they, got, they got one hike in, right? Didn't Shirakawa get one, like a 10 basis? Two, I think. Did he get two? two? I think he got two. I think yeah. he got up to 50 bits. 50, I remember. Okay. I was trading. That was like, oh, <laughs> five. And I was actually paying Tonar and buying 20. Tonar's a friend, uh, Tokyo, Tokyo. Uh, yeah. LIBOR, basically, or Tokyo OIS. And so I was paying that and buying 20 years, putting on flatteners, and did great. They hiked twice. I mean, the long end rallied like crazy, which tells you everything you need to know, right? right? Yeah. Just, right. Like the long end has rallied like 40 basis points, which in Japan is that's, that's a that's a um, that's a year's move. Exactly, more even probably yeah. these days. But yeah, back then they were still pretty high. Anyways, they got they did get to it. But the the interesting story is how do they market this? And that's kind of what you were getting at in your and how do you kind of convince people we're going to go above two for a while. Don't think we're going to three, four, five. And, and by the way, maybe, you know, like we went almost to zero for a little while, maybe, we will go, three. we will go yeah. to four, but it, we're not like, this is not our goal is to over the long run have inflation on average be two, which is not the stated inflation target today. Today, there's no memory. There's no memory. If you go above two, the, the policy says you just got to hike. You got to hike and go back. Yeah. It's like a there's it's like a first difference model yeah. uh, almost for the Taylor rule. It's it's just a and, and I think what everybody's realizing is if you have these persistent mistakes to one side or the other, you know you you're you're creating. I I think you're creating a real drag for the economy because you and I do a contract. You you we you give me a thirty year mortgage or I give you a thirty year mortgage. In your bank. If I'm taking out that mortgage under the belief that on average rates are going to, the inflation is going to be about 2%, I can make a decision on, you know, 
I want a fixed rate, I want a floating rate. Whatever. I do a fixed rate with you. That's great. And all of a sudden, five years into that, inflation is negative one. Well, that's a problem for me. Yep. You know, if I'm borrowing at six or seven. Now, I could have been okay borrowing at six, 400 over inflation if I felt – now now my internal real rate of pay mm-hmm. on this house just skyrocketed. Likewise, inflation goes to 10. Yep. You're not going to be a very happy guy very for happy. having given me that mortgage at six, right? right. So – Stable inflation expectations matter a lot for the decisions that households make, businesses make about longer term investment and savings. Right. And, and we have missed this inflation target since 2012 by an average of 65 basis points a year, cumulatively 525 basis points. It matters. It matters if we go into the next recession not believing this Fed's able to create a lot of inflation. It'll matter for the efficacy of QE. It'll matter for whether we get the portfolio balance channel to work again. Mm-hmm. And I think the, most of the committee is thinking about it that way, not the, oh, my God, we've, we're going to print another trillion dollars worth of cash, buy bonds, inflation is coming, inflation is coming. All of those inflation chicken littles, yeah. I mean, they, they just they should be fired. Right. Or, Anecdotally, <laughs> they should leave. it's hard to be in that camp. So how does the Fed get there? I and mean, we've been talking about all these disinflationary pressures that are more structural in the sense of demographics, um, technology. technology. The Fed's talking about how you know they're going to allow, they would rather allow to inflation to overshoot. But how do you get there? I mean, we've been talking about this. I mean, just... I, there was a paper earlier this year released by eight co-authors, I think, at the board. I can't remember what the name of it was. I can send it to you guys if you want. Uh, but anything that has eight, eight co-authors. Yeah, usually I mean, eight like... co-authors means that someone at the board level like Jay or, or Rich Clare said, can you please write this so we have uh, you know, something to fall back on when we, when we do something. In, so you in, spin in them in all different directions. Yeah. And, yeah. Uh, and, and basically it was kind of like, you know, what's the odds we're at the zero bound again and what tools should be used? in the next downturn and what's available to us. And it's, it's forward guidance, it's QE, and it's rates. Right? Those are the three basic tools. And the story was, we don't really know how effective any of this stuff was. We can't really figure it all out. So we just should do all of them pretty big size because at the end of the day, we did a lot of this stuff. What we thought was pretty quick and... Took a long time. Took to a long time to get out of it. <laughs> right, so, yeah. so so we learned, that's our, that's our learning mechanism. So there's obviously some sort of forces here that we're that aren't in the models, whether it's the ones we're talking about or other ones, still remains to be seen. I think the answer to your question is you, you do some QE, you do some forward guidance, and you cut some rates. You know, that's basically right. what you do. And, right. and I'm not sure it's that order. I used to think you cut rates, then you go to forward guidance, then, then you, you go QE. to QE. That, that, was kind resort, of, right? that was kind of like, you know, keep the balance sheet in the closet. We yeah. built this Frankenstein. We don't want to bring them out. It's like scares everybody. But, you know, Jay tried that with autopilot and the market freaked out. You built the monster. You got to embrace the monster. Right. Use it to your advantage. I think autopilot just scares everybody. As, as I think I, I mentioned it the day that it came out. Like, this is like, you know, it's not like airplane autopilot. It feels like more Tesla car autopilot yeah, right now. Like, yeah. we haven't really tested this that no. much, you know? And, and by the way, here's a tool that, you know, worked. What? Why are you keeping it in the closet, especially when you're, Pretty close to the zero bound again, and I would even argue, uh, and, I, and I, look, I've thought a lot about this. I don't know. I don't know that I have the answers, but I just don't really think the effectiveness of rate cuts as we get to zero is as well thought out as we'd like to think. Meaning, if I cut from eight to six, or I cut from six to four, or I even cut from four to two, that two hundred base point cut, I think that goes through the system in a pretty sort of linear 
maybe there's some convexity there, but it yeah. goes through in a pretty linear way. I cut from two to zero. I don't know that that has the same impact on the economy in terms of GDP, inflation, unemployment. I think people start to get freaked out about zero. They, they get freaked out because that negative rate, I think as we've seen, has been a massive overhang in, in the Eurozone, for instance, right? And all of a sudden now I have my money parked at a bank and I just forget inflation, you know, even assuming zero, it's, it's a number that people see and they feel like they're getting their money taken, which they are, yeah. but it's not from the invisible hand of inflation. Right. It's actually it's the nominal number goes down, right? It's, Even if you had a negative 4% inflation rate, people are going to be upset about losing 25 basis yeah. points. I mean, look, classical economists will say, look, there's no money illusion. Right. You know, you can't, you can't. Right. But you know what? I'm sorry. There's some money illusion. There is. I, you yeah. know, I'm, right. I came from a Chicago school. We thought, we thought money illusion was poison. It's not. Mm-hmm. It's real. And, and I think that's where the zero thing gets very like if i take rates from zero to negative two or negative two to negative right. four i actually don't think i get any stimulus whatsoever i think i actually i think you cause really, a depression i you yeah. really screw the economy up. well you screw up the banking system i think too 100%. which just and then you collapse the economy so why not kind of bring the balance sheet back into a, a more foreground i know they didn't like it they want to be a rate they want to normalize so they can go back to the frb us model we put the 25 base point simulation in it says this is going to happen to a, but you know what all the simulations are wrong anyway. Right. Like, so now just go to the QE and go to the forward guidance. You know, look, forward guidance could be a great tool. Imagine if the Fed says this after June. The announcement is, we've decided to change our framework to an average inflation target over some specified period, uh, the business cycle. And currently we've looked at this last business cycle over the last 10 years, and we realized we've missed our inflation target by X, by on average, it's called 50 basis points a year, something like that, or probably be less, be 30 or 40, because they were pretty close to the target in the beginning. So we would like to make an announcement at this point in the cycle that we would not be raising interest rates at this point in this cycle unless the PCE deflator, the core PCE deflator, was above two and a quarter or two and a half percent for X number of months. That would be pretty interesting guidance. Just take the rate. Like what they did with the unemployment rate. We will not hike rates until the unemployment rate's below six and a half. When you go below, you can keep moving down to six. It's still low inflation because the model didn't work. So I'm not saying they can get to it. And your question is, how do you get it? I think that forward guidance helps. That'll, that would probably give you some asset price, you know, upswing. It would give you some growth upswing. But we're really talking about how do we create inflation? This is interesting. I think, Not it's fisc- I think it's fiscal is what we're talking about too here. We need some more stimulative policies perhaps to do that too. I mean, that, that's kind of the way I, I think about the popularity of MMT and, you know, it's a yeah. tough thing to digest because you know, you just you wonder how it's spent, right? And, and that's the whole thing. If if you're going to create the money to do it, but that's a form of perhaps creating inflation, mailing people checks, UBI, 100%. the universal basic income that people think of. I mean, now are they enough to stoke a massive inflation? I don't know, but you can always increase the number, right? If you uh, wanted absolutely. to, Look, right? Inflation is always an everywhere monetary phenomenon. Yeah. In the end of the day, if you want, if you and I got, <laughs> if we, if you and I got control of the central bank tomorrow, and they said they wanted three percent inflation, we could do it. That's right. We could really do it. I, and I could do it in Japan. You could do it in Japan. It, it, it's doable with 
the caveat that you, you, you t- you're going to take the printing press and basically just run. Crank it up, right. And, and you can buy debt, dispense of it, the bonfire of the vanities, yeah. as I yeah. like to call it. Uh, <laughs> MMT is a, a, you know, the problem with MMT, and I'm a big fan of Warren Mozart. I've known him for many, many years. And I like Stephanie Kelton. She's wonderful as well. You can't politicize this. It's not about left or right. It's not about where the money goes. It's just about government spending and how you finance government spending. That's right. I can have a sales tax. I can have a wealth tax. I can have an income tax. Or I can have an inflation tax. Mm-hmm. An inflation tax is a stealth tax right. which devalues the existing stock of currency in the system because right. I'm printing that. I am, I am taxing somebody in society to pay for goods and services production. So all we're doing is talking about an inflation tax in lieu of another mechanism to conduct government spending or to pay back past government spending, which was financed by deficits. So I can unwind my old debts by either charging you a tax, a physical tax on your income and your work and your labor, which is going to make you work less, or a sales tax, which is making you buy less, or a wealth tax, which is making you flee the country, or an inflation tax, which is going to create some inflation, which I'm trying to create. <laughs> which tax would I like? Right. I kind of want the inflation right. tax. Right. Anybody, want, what anybody who has debt, has liabilities, would like that. Yes. I mean, it does. I mean, there's a lot of countries yeah. that might not like it because right. a lot of them hold <laughs> our debt. Right. But the point is, and, and yes, they will pay. Right. That That is, look, I, I remember coming out of Jeffries and, and, you know, the 70s versus 90s, you know, Stocks are for lovers, gold is for haters. It was like, look, the biggest enemy in your portfolio is cash. That's what they can print. You want non-printable assets. You either buy equity capital, real estate capital, or commodities. Mm-hmm. And the, the 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 statement or the 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 execution of that trade will just depend on whether you think this monetary stimulus will create incentives to generate real return on capital, which will ultimately create real returns on capital. If you believe that, and I, I believe the business cycle has not been repealed, I believe those incentives will come into play and have come into play, and we have and will generate real returns on capital, then you buy stocks. Yeah. And and you bet that the Fed is going to keep pushing that balance sheet and keep pushing that low rate story until the constraint hits on inflation. And, and MMT is just another constraint on inflation. Mm-hmm. It's just finding the boundary. And, and, and I don't know where it is because I don't know how to me- measure those technology demographic or supply side drivers. I think none of us are really comfortable yet that we know where you – know, imagine Japan buys all the bonds and they burn them. Like they just they, they merge the Ministry of Finance and the Treasury into one department and they buy all the bonds and they're gone. They have a 0% debt to GDP ratio. Like, your initial reaction is probably, yeah, that's probably not good for the yen. You know, that's probably not good for the bond market, but there is no bond market. Right. By definition, what you call it up, right? The GGB market doesn't sell off because there is no GGB market, right? right? Yeah. So, now, they may kind of bring a new issue and you say, well, am I going to am I gonna buy that for 10 <laughs> basis points? No, probably not. I want to pay Argentinian yeah, rates at that I'll point. I'll pay a little yeah. bit uh, higher. Yeah. But on the other hand, they have no debt. 
they're they're much better. They're boys. They're the they're the. Well, that's I, always been the joke about <laughs> the EM countries is that well they're much better positioned, you know, fiscal tenability yeah. simply because they've already defaulted. Exactly. Right. Where the rest of us have just let it kind of go. And on. you're going to land an airplane if you work for any private equity firm. Every private jet's going to land in Tokyo, going I want that building, I want that building, that's I want right. that. I mean everything, right? right. Especially the currency weakens. It's a huge stimulus. So look, I I think. This some version of MMT, some version of the bond fire, as mm-hmm. I like to call it, some mer- version of retiring previously issued debt in a way that dispenses with it completely, not inflating it well, away. We, we've said that there could always be a redemption tax, right? When you come to the Treasury and say, hey, Treasury, I'd like to get my par back. They're like, oh, yeah, that's a 5% tax. So here's 95 cents for every dollar, right? Yeah, that's and that's a way of partially doing it. And then it's a tax, you know, putting air quotes up um, instead of a default, right? Yeah. Uh, it's one way of helping retire that. But Dave, I know you have things to do today. We're we're going up on an hour here. We'd love having you in. We'd love to have you back sometime. But before we let you get out of here, we've got to introduce you to Sam's favorite part of the show. And that part of the show, I'm, I'm sorry, I just paused for a second because I'm looking at the words on your shirt there. I'm trying to figure, is it? Okay, yeah, I wasn't. All right, all right. I wasn't sure. If I, I think it's that. a merging Jeez. of vegan and gangster together. <laughs> yes, uh, I thought right. said gangster. I thought you were going to come in all gangster on it. So uh, I was get a little worried. I'm very but, passionate about my dietary uh, changes in the last couple of years but we could talk about that another time okay all right so my favorite part of the show is sherman says for the rules of the game they are i will give you a phrase and i would expect some type of response i've given up on the one word response so i'm just going to say response a verbal word shark if you will and then I will alternate, starting with Jeff Sherman first, and then move over to you, Zervos. So, Sherman, ESG. Everywhere. Price multiples. Higher. Tech IPOs. Proliferating. China tariffs. Fade. Treasury issuance. All-time highs as a percentage of GDP in an expansion. I could keep caveating that. That would be all-time high then, too, yeah. <laughs> EM, uh, emerging market economic, economies. I can't read my own writing here. Emerging market economies. Struggling with dollars. South Korea. Struggling with dollars. <laughs> Fed economists. Need new ones. Free lunch. After we talked about that Chicago school, I love free lunches. <laughs> and the final one is nickname. Spoos and blues. Spoos and blues. <laughs> right. All right. Well, uh, is that the trade for the rest of the year, Spoos and blues? Yeah. Worked so far, right? So been, far, so good. Been my hobby horse for uh, many years. This is the 10th year. That's pretty much been my my baseline. We, we played a little bit in the German market, a little bit in the Japanese yeah. market when... Yeah. When the, the rates got too low or the equities seemed to run a little too quick and we started to raise rates. But yeah, I think risk parity. I, you know, I encourage people to think about having exposure to risk parity at all times. Yeah. Well, there you go. You have it. David Zervos, chief uh, strategist at Jefferies, and we appreciate you coming by. Uh, again, uh, you can catch us on SoundCloud, iTunes, Google Play, also at the Double Line website and stay tuned for our next cast coming soon. Thanks again. Thank you.
audio presentation represents DoubleLine's intellectual property. No portion of this presentation may be published, reproduced, transmitted, or rebroadcast in any media in any form without the expressed written permission of DoubleLine. DoubleLine has no obligation to provide any updates or changes. To receive permission from DoubleLine, please contact media at DoubleLine.com. Neither DoubleLine nor any of its affiliates makes any representation or warranty as to the accuracy or completeness of the statements or any information contained in this podcast and any liability therefore, including and respect of direct, indirect, or consequential loss or damage is expressly disclaimed. DoubleLine is not providing any financial, economic, legal, accounting, or tax advice in this podcast. The receipt of this podcast by any listener is not to be taken as constituting the giving of investment advice by any DoubleLine entity or individual to that listener, nor to constitute such person a client of any DoubleLine entity. The portfolio risk management process includes an effort to monitor and manage risk, but does not imply low risk. Copyright 2019, DoubleLine Capital.